0: A popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360 degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task, but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. What, what, for you, have been some of the sort of biggest takeaways from that experience, both positive and negative? You know, for go, going back into your career before you made this switch into sales enablement, which is such a you know, I can see it's such such a, a sort of career defining, life defining sort of shift for you in leaving that sort of uh, sort of sales. Well, it's still sales, but more into that enablement world.
1: I, I first of all, I agree. It is still sales because what you're literally selling is the ongoing experience and that journey of helping the the sellers um, as part of enablement. It's critical that we're actually listening in on calls. We're still out in the field, if you will, because the more ivory towered we become, the less impactful and useful we are to sales folks, Mm -hmm. thus less impactful to our prospects and our customers. Now, to answer your first question, (laughs) not only have I experienced, I'm going to be completely um, vulnerable right now and say, I've even shared and rolled out some really bad enablement early on in my career. And I'll tell you what made it bad. And that was the fact that I was giving sales what I thought they needed versus simply staying in the mode of a salesperson and constantly staying in the discovery and qualification piece, right? It's not enough to go out and have those conversations or those surveys or whatever they may be. You have to constantly iteratively do these things because what's happening in the world changes every day quickly. So it's important that there's a constant touching of bases, not only with sales, but also with product marketing, product management, engineering, HR. Now, this is where enablement gets has an opportunity to kind of be that hub that spokes out to every part of the organization. So going from what was bad was giving them what we thought they needed, not going back and touching bases enough, talking to only the successful rock star folks. You've got to talk to folks that are struggling as well as the rock stars because you're going to get two different sets of lenses. It's also important that you talk from top down versus just bottom up. But there has to be a point because I guarantee you where the delta and the need is going to be between the two. What I mean is sales has the strategy that they're rolling out, right? Sailors are saying, yeah, but this is what happens out in the real world. Somewhere between there's that delta and that's where enablement should fit. Now, what's working well in enablement? I think it's how teaching people to have conversations instead of giving presentations. Get away from just throwing up a deck and stop trying to go with generic pieces to, I can talk to Bank of America. I can talk to a small startup. I can talk to a founder. I can talk to Quaker Oats. I can talk to Royal Bank of Scotland. Each one of them has a different need. Mm
2: -hmm. The other
1: piece is teaching sellers something I think that gets lost, Phil. And forever we are teaching our, our sellers to go and either find, enhance, or manufacture pain. It's not always about pain. I think it's it's about broadening your lenses on this. Sometimes it's about um, how do we help them to mitigate that pain? But other times it's how do we help them to increase efficiency and productivity? So it comes out of the questions and the type of questions. The third piece is, and here's a... a Much-needed question that gets left out oh so many times often. We always ask. We do our homework. We ask about what's going on with the company. What are the goals? What are the milestones? What are the deliverables? What are your pains? You know what gets left out, Phil? So, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, how can my company help you by only working with you on how we can help you move forward? The person, the individual. Mm -hmm. right? Can we help you? Put your name up in light. Can we help you get a promotion? Can we help you get out of the doghouse? Can we get you a bigger seat or a bigger voice at the table? By leaving out yeah. that question and asking about the individual, we're only finding out 50% of what's actually useful. And we all talk about, oh, we need to have a champion. This person should be, we want them to be our champion. What's the best way to do it? Ask them personal questions now on how we can make them bigger, faster, and stronger. Hundred percent agree that
0: that so much of sales is about building uh, that relational experience. But uh, I mean, just to share with you some of the research that we've done on the topic, um, and and you talk about this in your book as well. You talk about you know the buying cycle and getting getting a buyer perspective and then working back from that. And that's exactly what my research was. And I've interviewed as part of my doctorate. Um, some I think part of the doctorate program was something like seventy nine different customers from around the world about how do they want to be sold to. And uh, I asked them to share what was good practice, you know, can you give me examples of salespeople who sold to you in a brilliant way and salespeople have sold you in a bad way? And I've also asked them the question, what percentage of salespeople actually sell to you in a way that you really want to be you know, sold to? And I, 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 I mean, the, the data probably won't surprise you, but less than 10% of customers that I interviewed actually said that salespeople sold to them in a the way that they wanted. And when we started to unpeel the layers of the onion, uh, that, you know, this, this conversation wasn't around uh, systems and data. It's, it's very much around personal approaches. And um, a lot of it's to do with um, the values that they saw salespeople have. And they're able to interpret behavior at you know that goes beyond you know they look beyond the spoken word and they they look deep inside an individual who's selling to them asking themselves questions like can i trust you and where did that funny question come from why are you asking me about pain coming back to your point about pain because i've been on that training course myself you know so um i mean the thing that that kind of staggers me a little bit is is that percentage figure. I mean, which I'm sure is not anything new to you, and you've probably seen it through your experience as well. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that? You know, why why do people
1: have such a poor perception generally of salespeople? I, I think it really comes down to this and having a number of conversations ongoing with salespeople. And also, remember, I'm all generally their ideal client profile, so I get pitched a lot as an enablement leader. And what I've realized that turns people off is when you start trying to sell me or you start yeah. talking about what I call bits, bites, and bots, which are your features and benefits. And when you try and come in, as I said earlier, and you, have that, you throw up that presentation versus really asking questions and having a conversation. When you make this thing so generic that it feels like you could probably leave here and walk across the street and give the same exact information that you just gave me and, I, and I'm starting to realize the reason is because and, and not just learning but let's confirm um, relationships are the backbone of success and that is really about helping it's not about selling I know it's called sales but there I believe there's never been a time where um, leading with humanity and EQ has meant more than it does today especially what we're starting to come out of the last few years with covid. Mm-hmm. If that thing has taught any of us anything, it's taught us two things. One, get comfortable with being uncomfortable because your mm-hmm. life can shift in a heartbeat. And the second piece is EQ and a man, in, excuse me, EQ and humanity is really what moves the needle. But I'm going to put a, one above all of that and you said it earlier, and that is understand The buyer's journey, first, Mm -hmm. second, and third, because you need to understand who buys. Do they have buying seasons? Do they have buying cycles? Do they have buying committees? And the person you're working with, is this an influencer or is this a decision maker? And you treat them both equally. And that's where people change. If you're not a decision maker, I'm just going to kind of hush you aside. No, 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 no. Um, if I've learned anything from my, my travels internationally, and that is not always does the biggest voice and vote sit at the head of the table.
3: Phil, do you think, um, well, there's two parts to this question. What What is the difference between change and transformation? Um, but I just wanted to add, based on this conversation is. Can commission and bonus structures drive transformation for organisations? Okay. Um, well, I think Greg is going to be
0: very familiar with probably what my answer is to the first question about the difference between uh, change and transformation because we 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 cover this topic in so much detail um, on the masters programs that we run, um, and we we often refer to the analogy of the of the caterpillar and the butterfly, you know, and, uh, um, you know, change is not building a faster caterpillar, you know, change is a caterpillar transforming into a, into a butterfly. And it's something that's sustainable and it's something that cannot be, uh, changed back, you know, so, so really you're talking about a sort of fundamental change of typically values and belief systems. And I think a, a lot of people talk about transformation, you know and i think it's possibly an overused word um i think a lot of people talk about transformation in the context of faster change or quicker change and and that indeed might be the right word you know um uh, to be used but they use the word transformative um we we as a you know as as an organization only use this word in the context of um, a very deep-rooted um, change of values and, and belief systems. And in the context of strategy, let's say, it's actually sort of taking a market opportunity that an organization has or a need to, to do a fundamental shift and recognizing that the only way that that organization is going to shift is if there is a fundamental change of mindset required, it's not a better CRM process. It's not different uh, kind of sales structures, but it's, it's a different way of thinking about how the business needs to be run and what's going to drive the business forward. And it's not every organization that needs to make that kind of change. So, even though they may use the term transformative, in the sense of high growth strategies, let's say, it's not necessarily transformation. I mean, we had a had a very interesting conversation this morning with the head of sales of an organisation. He has about two thousand salespeople inside his organisation in EMEA, and he was talking about. Uh, and he shared with me his transformation initiatives, and they've called it sales transformation. And when I when I looked at the initiatives, there were things like um, you know CRM, uh, sales ordering, sales ordering processes, pricing strategy. There were six, I think, six different initiatives that were being he sort of the pillars under which he was going to achieve this transformation. And my concern when I saw this uh, this was uh, it, it, is it is it really transformation or is it simply becoming more efficient at what you're currently doing by improving your tech not use of technology and and different processes and it was only till we got into the conversation with him that he said no this is is not just about these initiatives but it's actually what we need is a fundamental change in the way people see and think the way they want to do business. Um, Part of it's connected with digital and digital transformation, which is a key part of their change process. Um, But a lot of it's to do with the way in which they engage with customers in conversation and use those conversations to um, develop new business opportunities um, because he was saying that his thirty percent sales target simply can't be reached doing things as we currently done it. And none of these initiatives that we looked at earlier was addressing that fundamental mindset change. So um, yeah, so I, I think that, you know, the butterfly caterpillar analogy is a really is a really good analogy for me. If you are looking at simply selling more and doing it faster then you may be talking about being a faster caterpillar but if you are looking at some more profound shift required then that could be transformation okay so um i think this neatly kind of segues into the um into the topic of transformation and and kind of change. And we just thought we would set the scene on this topic of conversation about making sure we understand the terminology, you know correctly, because sometimes I think people use these two words interchangeably, um, perhaps not understanding what the difference is um, uh, between them. Um, Axel, I don't know if you want to share what how you see the difference between change and transformation.
4: This I would love to, I just delivered um, last week an interesting uh, session on future um, way of leading to India. And when I asked them, what's the difference between change and transformation, most of them came with an intention. They saw transformation as a positive change with an intentionality, which was more positive than change, which surprised me. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the master to investigate transformation. For me, the difference is um, a difference of nature, right? The change can be done and undone, right? You can move on (laughs) on a diet and then you can take some weight uh, back, right? So that's a change. Uh, Transformation is different. Transformation cannot be undone. That's what we call a second level change. So when you go into a transformation, there is no way back. It's a very deep rooted change, something that usually impacts your belief systems, your mindset. It's not, you know, when you know that the the, the earth is round, then it's round. <laughs> you cannot come back and say, now it's flat, even though some people might question, but uh, usually that's how it is. So transformation cannot be undone. Now we can talk about the level of magnitude, but I don't think that's the most important. Something also that sometimes is surprising, just to throw it on the table, is that um, transformation is um, has a start and an end, right? There is a point where that transformation occurs. Right, So you can create an environment where that transformation can take place. And that's what I would like to discuss about with the master program. While change is more of a continuous process, kind of innovation, things that are incremental uh, to a normal daily routine. Transformation is different. There is something that happens, that starts driving that transformation, that makes that transformation occur. It's uh, this continuous process.
5: But if you look at... Uh, the resistance or the barriers to sales transformation. uh, From our experience, there's a couple of things that relate to the word fear. And one of the words that we also mentioned, um, at least I did was ego. And that um, comes to mind when you think about leadership, as Will was saying, you can go top down or bottom up entrepreneurship, I, I very much like that word. And I work at a company where we value entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship very much but you can you can have all the good ideas in the world and um, make a lot of powerpoints about it with your team with your commercial team if there is no leader that recognizes it or is too afraid to sponsor it then it's never going to happen and that's one of the barriers that we identified as a group was mm. very important um, the second topic was time um, I think post-COVID, every sales team, at least in the SAP uh, world, has been very busy closing new deals, um, generating new demands, building new propositions, etc., which are not related to sales transformation, but just um, time consuming for everybody in every sales team. So there's no time to transform, which is a barrier because you need to create time to transform your team if you really want. Um, And the third and last one we discussed very briefly was talent. Uh, One of the things you can do as a company to transform any team, but also a sales team is hire fresh new um, talent from outside the box. So for instance, if I hire an account manager, um, I prefer not to hire a senior um, principal SAP account manager, which has been running key accounts for 20 years. I rather have an innovative young person who comes from a company that has never worked with SAP before. And the barrier is that they're hard to find.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: They're hard to pay. And they are hard to sell to because you really have to convince them to work for you as a company. You have to think outside of the box with compensation, with work environment, with culture. So the war on talent is another barrier that it's mm. that it's creating. Um, Slower transformation in sales teams.
6: Okay. Yeah. So uh, so in our group, we we talked a lot about, um, well, we use the word survival um, and the idea that we we need to transform to survive. So if we continue to try to do things the way we did 15 years ago from a sales perspective, then ultimately we'll disengage with our buyers and the way that they want to buy and the sales process that they need us to go through. Um, you know, when I think about our business, that has changed dramatically. The way we engage with a client has changed dramatically, and it is about survival ultimately. Because if our competitors are transforming and we're not, then we will be left behind. Um, so we we talked about the idea that transformation is important to um, to, uh, to attracting young talent. And being able to bring younger people into the business to enable that transformation to help us to drive it Um, but also to showcase to that younger talent that we are a business that is already in that process that's moving forward with transformation Um, bringing in the areas that have become more important areas like sustainability and being able to show our green credentials because that's more and more important to to the younger talent pot. Um, We had a conversation in our group around the idea that not every single member of the team is going to buy into the transformation. Um, So some will, some won't. It's a desire piece. If the desire is there to transform, then great. But ultimately, it is possible to use the experienced team so the team that have perhaps done things the old way, but done it successfully and continue to do it successfully, but also for them to work in tandem and 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 to assist the development of the those that do want to go on the journey that want to transform. So certainly in our business we can almost divide that in in, in two. We, we we've got a great established team um, of account managers that work with. Um, you know that work through a certain process. Um, it's probably fair to say that that you know in a hundred percent of the cases that maybe that desire to transform isn't isn't there, but we can still harness the power of those individuals um, by enabling them to work with the um, the new talent and the the individuals that have have got that desire to to learn new methods. And to engage with clients in in new ways, um, so transformation is is absolutely key. Trying to tap into every single individual that wants to go on the journey, but timings are different. You know, some people are happy and ready to transform almost overnight, and some people just need a little bit more care and, and need taking along that journey over um, over a slightly longer period. But ultimately, the key to it is that it's what our clients need us to do. Um, it's what they're looking for now in that sales process. I think it's fairly widely spoken about that a client or a customer or a prospect can now find out an awful lot of stuff online. They can do their own research. They can do the homework. They can probably know a lot about your products or your service without the involvement of an account manager or a salesperson. So the transformation piece is understanding where do we bring that value? And those were kind of some of the things we spoke about in our room.
0: I just want to come back to the management angle to begin with, because I think so many of these issues are not just with the mindset of the selling organization, but the mindset of the manager. And we have got examples of some of our students who have inherited poor-performing sales teams selling in a market which is tough and where the performance across all of the salespeople have not only exceeded target, but exceeded target by a percentage that enables those salespeople to go to winner's circle. This has been achieved, and this may be part of the answer, that we could talk about in terms of this proof of concept. This has been achieved by a sales leader who has an absolute passion about the way that they want to be recognized as a leader. So they want to be recognized as a leader, not just by getting one person in the team hitting the sales targets to achieve his overall team target, but every single person in the team doing the same. So they do not regard themselves as a great leader unless all the people cross the line and hopefully some of those people crossing the line extraordinarily well. So I think a lot of it starts with the vision of the sales leader. And then I think it's linked to a topic that I know, Ian, that you're really passionate about, which is coaching. And it's actually looking at how it's having a frame of mind and a mindset driven around recognizing people's potential and then having a powerful coaching concept, methodology, in order to coach the individuals through all of the different activities needed to maximize sales performance. So this combination of a personal vision coupled with coaching support and ability are two incredibly important factors at a management level. And then I think you mentioned in the research that we've done around selling mindsets, we've seen some extraordinary improvements in performance. By salespeople adopting the four winning mindsets as we've defined it, and over a period of time, depending on the sales cycle of the client producing extraordinary performance, whether it's in a quarter or whether it's over a two-year period. Yes, I mean, we would obviously recommend a culture in a sales organization that's built around the four differentiating mindsets of authenticity, client-centricity, proactive creativity, and tactful audacity, coupled with a manager who has a vision to really want every single person in the team to perform well with exceptional coaching skills. I think that combination is an ideal combination to maximize performance and hopefully increase the stats in favor of one hundred percent of self people meeting quota. So yes, we have got evidence. We have got published case studies to that effect. It's interesting when things aren't going well. You said you tend to go down to the sort of you know what's the root cause of you know why is it that we're not actually hitting targets? And so in the absence of results, you can't look at results. You simply got to look at well, what is the team doing? And yes, he did a lot of quite sort of forensic work in asking the sales team to track the activities that they were doing and to whom, and what level of the organization are these people selling to? What kind of discussions are going on with the people that they have been meeting? And what were the outcomes of those discussions? So his conversations were very much based on what did you do? Who did you do it with? And what was the outcome? So there were just three simple things that he asked each of the salespeople day in, week out, in order to understand the correlation between activity and result. So he wasn't in- interested in results. Well, results weren't there. He was simply focused on the what we refer to as leading indicators that would lead to results later. So this kind of analysis of activity was another, Yeah, thanks for raising the question, well, or the point, was another factor that he looked at, because it linked very much with coaching. How do you know how to coach people when you don't have a deep understanding of what it is that they do? And we often find when we're talking to sales managers on the master's programs that we run is they, when they start to talk about the cadence of coaching, you know, that, and it's very much linked to sort of quarterly pipeline and they very much get all forecasts and perhaps pipeline forecast, meaning what do they forecast in the current quarter versus pipeline, maybe more future looking. But it's quite clear that the majority of conversations that take place is around what we would call lagging indicators. And I think this is a big mistake and leads to the fact that people lose sight of what it is they need to do to generate results. They get fixated on the performance. But in a way, you can't blame the sales managers about doing this because they get pushed and shoveled around performance all the time by their senior execs. So they're given, if you like, the culture of the organization and the things that get discussed at those sort of QBR meetings that are so results orientated that there's no real emphasis looking at what it is that drives results. I don't know if I've rambled on a bit. So yeah, Ian, I think it's a combination of the selling mindsets that we've got so much evidence to show that if salespeople adopt these selling mindsets, They will be in what we've called the winner's circle and much higher probabilities of closing opportunities. But I don't think we can underestimate either the importance of the role of the sales manager and the sales leadership to provide the right coaching support for them as well. I remember we had one of the stories that I really love is we had a group of managers going on the sales Transformation Masters program. And one of the managers, he was based in Colombia and he was confronted with a big challenge. He worked for Sony Mobile. Of course, they had a huge amount of competition from the other handset suppliers. And the regulators in Colombia were trying to block the sale of smartphones because they felt that. Economically, it wasn't good for the country. And they wanted to make the accessibility of smartphones more, you know, the lower end handsets so that more of the population could buy them. And this would have had a disastrous effect on the Sony market share. And so what he did, and this happened within a three month period was he adopted the proactive creativity and tactful audacity mindset. And he went back to the regulators and he challenged them on the logic of the regulations that they were about to implement throughout the country. It took a lot of courage to be able to go to the regulators and say, hang on, I think you've made made a mistake here. Can I have some of your time to rethink this? And he'd done a lot of work on looking at the economic ROI and such that the regulators agreed that they wouldn't block the sale of high-end smartphones. And as these conversations were going on with Sony and the regulators, Sony preempted the fact that they would not introduce this legislation and that the market would be open for the sale of these smartphone handsets. So they stocked up, they had the stock ready, they entered the Christmas period, which is the biggest opportunity for handset sales is over the Christmas period. And the other handset manufacturers had depleted their stock of handsets, so they didn't have any stock or much less stock. And within the space of two or three months, Sony increased their market share in Colombia from something like eight to 17%. And this was done based on taking those mindsets that we know so much about of tactful audacity and proactive creativity and implementing it in a sales approach. But I love this story because of its innovation, inventiveness, courage, and of course, business impact was amazing. Yeah. And of course, it's been published in the Journal of Sales Transformation. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, I kind of want to talk about,
3: well, how as salespeople can we manage anxiety? I know it's really important from a a leadership point of view, and we've We've discussed that, that, the environment, the culture has to be right. And um, But for individuals working in sales, what can we do? What, what are we in control of that can help manage um, those occasions where you might be feeling anxious? And do you have any experience, Luke, on this that you'd want to share with us?
1: Yeah, of
7: course. So, you know, shortly after my diagnosis with bipolar, um, I went through cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and, and, a number of other, you know, therapeutical interventions. And the one thing I learned is, is the importance of communication and I'll hone in on this because on one hand, we have talked about the importance of positive leadership, but it's very important for the individual to communicate how they're feeling, um, as best as they can, you know, I'll give some examples of that. Um, if you're experiencing anxiety, let's say, on a, on a daily basis, when have you communicated that to your manager? Have you taken the opportunity to share that with them? You know, so, you know, as you know, Will, you're, you're, my, you're my line manager. Um, I'm sure you, you, you could testify to, to the fact that, that, that I'm quite transparent about uh, my mental health, um, and also being quite comfortable to raise the alarm if, if there's ever any need for it. You know, give a good example. I was going through a tough time a couple of months ago, uh, experiencing what well, I'd say moderate depression, and I was finding it quite hard to to function at work, um, and I was a bit concerned about some face-to-face interactions that I had coming up. So I had some, some customer visits booked and I, I, I wasn't sure how how they were going to go. So I, I, I've, I remember sort of calling you up saying, you know, I'm struggling to even wake up in the morning. Um, I've got a, a real lack of interest in work at the moment. Um, what can we do about it? <clears throat> the result of that conversation was that You said, are you happy to visit that climb on next Tuesday? And I said, well, it would do me good. It would do me good to get out of the house, get on the road, in the car, go and see that customer. But you were able to... Well, you basically told me not to do much work for two days, is what you did. And that, for me, was only possible by me talking about how I was feeling. Yeah. So... Yeah, of course, I commend your management, by the way. That was, that was a good... You know, <laughs> great. That was, that was a great move. Thanks, mate. But... but and the but isn't a butt against you. The butt is you or any manager would not have been able to make that intervention if your reportee, a.k.a. me, hadn't said how they were feeling. Yeah. So you're, you're not... Um, <clears throat> You're not a mind reader, right? So this is why I think there's a lot of onus on the individual being transparent about how they're feeling. Um, because otherwise, you don't, give, you, you don't give your line manager or your organisation the opportunity to, to put things in place to help you.
0: You know, sort of focusing on the... I guess, it, is it mainly the written word that you are... Or is it also the spoken narrative? I mean, uh, it, I'm not sure now where your practice takes you or, or, or whether there's a link between the two.
2: Well, you, know, you bring up a really interesting question, which is like, in what form should we kind of capture this narrative so that we can tell it, you know, so that it functions across all these ways that I talked about sales, of course, marketing. Uh, product and, and sometimes t- it's just going to be someone talking and sometimes we might be able to show slides or have to tell mm-hmm. it in paragraphs on a website. And you know the traditional answer to this question is let's write down some sort of like boilerplate thing that's internal in the company that no one outside ever sees. So it's some sort of internal thing. Uh, often it, marketers call it like a messaging house or something where there's like fragments of messages. Like here's our top message. Here's our supporting messages. here blah, blah, blah. And the idea of this thing is everybody, whether they're going to talk or write or whatever, they're going to come back to this thing and pull messages from it. And I found that that would break down in my career in, in, in two big ways. One a lot of people didn't come back to it, especially outside of marketing, where it was often kept. And the second thing was that often, uh, even if they did, it was hard for a lot of people to take these fragments of messages and weave them into whatever uh, you know talk or, or writing they were trying to do. So I thought really hard about this and experimented a lot. And I came to the, the 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 asset that I came to that worked the best as the kind of unifying thing for the narrative was the sales deck, the sales mm-hmm. deck, the sales pitch as the unifying thing. Like if we can write it down uh, in this sort of simple way that works in a sales goal, that is the thing that everybody can use to talk to everybody. And this is a, a controversial position. I mean, most people think of the sales deck as an output of some more fundamental, I don't know, strategic thing. And I started to say, hmm, no, the sales deck is the fundamental strategic thing. Um, you asked about the five pieces, uh, well, I mentioned them and then you, you asked me to, yeah. to, to elaborate on, them. um, Well, the first one really is this: this change in the world, this shift in the world that I talked about—that old game, new game uh, Mm setup. So I literally, I just ask the team, okay, you know, I I show them some examples, like some of the ones I I talked about with you just earlier, and I say, what is that for us? And um, you know, there are some there are some uh, kind of guidelines or, or principles I've learned that sort of help us get to a good one. Uh, so Mm. for instance, um, it's usually good if the old game was not like on the face of it, really dumb, like, you know, transaction, Mm. let's take the Zora one, you know, transactions, you you weren't dumb to be doing transactions, right? That was the way that you won. That used to be the winning game. Sometimes people say things like, Hey, the old game was, uh, you were, you never had any data and you made bad decisions. And the new game is you're, you're going to make great decisions. You know, nobody ever set out to play an old game called I don't have any data and I make bad decisions. You know, yeah. um, you know, uh, an example that's kind of like that, that that goes to a better place is is one that Gong uh, that came out of my work with Gong, which they talk about goodbye opinions. Hello, reality. You know, it used to be we kind of ran sales on on opinions. I think a lot of people will say, "Yeah, yeah, I, I used to do that," uh, and then now you know we're going to run it based on this reality view. Um, the next piece is okay. We we've talked about this shift in the world. How does this creating life and death stakes for the buyer? So again, this this draws on the movie. You know the often the 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 main character is kind of called to action and refuses. Uh, it's what the, Joseph mm. Campbell, the great narrative uh, uh, theorist, called refusal of the call. So, you know, when when in Star Wars, when Obi-Wan shows up, sorry if the spoilers, anyone, uh, uh, Obi-Wan <laughs> shows up and Luke, he asks Luke, hey, you know, you want to go out into space and have adventures and all this be a pilot? And, and Luke has been bellyaching about this the whole time. Uh, What does Luke say? He actually says, you know, mm, I, I kind of got to get home. That sounds a little, you know, a little dangerous. <laughs> so what makes Luke go? Oh, it's when the Empire, you know, kills his aunt and uncle. And now it's kind of implied they're kind of coming for him or, or for his droids. And so the stakes are now life and death for him. Mm-hmm. So Zora, when they talk about this shift from, uh, you know, transactions to subscriptions... They're they're not only saying hey that's happening they're saying hey look look what's happening all the the new winning companies like like Airbnb and you know th- this was back in 2015 when when these com- this was a new story yeah. but. Airbnb and box.com and, and uh, Uber, th- these are all subscription or subscription like companies. You know, the person not buying the thing they're they're renting it in some way. Yeah. Look at all the, you know, the losers They're they're all out of business. Anyone who was selling some, you know, the blockbusters, whatever. Anyway, so they're, they're showing that there's this life and death thing. And there's many ways to do that. Um, but anyway, we try to try to see if we can, uh, come up with one. Um, the next piece is what I call the buyer mission statement. So we're we're presenting this new game to the buyer saying, hey, the, the world has changed. You, you, know, you know, in the movie, it's usually very clear, very quickly, like what the main character has to do to win. So in Star Wars, yeah. within like the first 15 minutes, we know, OK, you got to destroy this Death Star thing. Mm. Uh, and that's going to be it. And same in, with with uh, with Zwar, they say, hey, you're basically gonna have to deliver what we call the subscription experience, and they they define this in different ways, and it's gonna I, you know, I don't want to get into it, but okay, that's the that's the goal state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what is this goal state? So I met, I mentioned with uh, 360 learning, we're having this shift from uh, top down learning to collaborative learning. The goal state upskill from within. So can we come up with this phrase? And, and you can imagine this phrase often does work very well, like at the top of a website or, you know, yeah. we have to sum it all up. The last two pieces then are, um, okay, so what are, the, um, <clears throat> what are the obstacles to getting to mm-hmm. that goal state? Uh, you know, so again in the movies, there's, he can't just go destroy the Death Star. There's lots of you know obstacles along the way. It's going to be yeah. the same thing. Obviously, if 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 you could, if the buyer could just get to that endpoint easily, no need for you and your your great product and its silver bullets. So, what are the, th- the the big challenges? And of course, these are challenges that that existing solutions are not going to to, to handle. Uh, and then, of course, the we we're, we're we're then going to come and talk about the the capabilities we have. Now we can talk about the solar boats because it's really clear now why they matter. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, and yeah. we can talk about you know what we do, and and of course along with that you know proof like uh, ca- success yeah. stories and things like that. Can you tell me what you mean by leading with heart?
0: I mean, what does that mean? Because it could be it's just a it could be just a fluffy thing. Yeah. What does what leading by heart mean?
8: Yeah. So uh, for me, it means obviously many things, right? There is a lot of uh, uh, traits that uh, a leader with ha- heart needs to have, right? Which is yeah. uh, being authentic, uh, being uh, straightforward, knowing how to give feedback and so on and so on. So there are a lot of characteristics of a leadership with heart but for me the the most important part is caring about the person you have in front of you and seeing them as a person not as a numbers in your pnl and i genuinely believe that if you look at the person as a human with skills, ability, things they do amazing, things they maybe don't do that good, mm-hmm. then you can set up a team of people where everyone can shine where they are the best. If you look at the person as a job role, as a someone who was hired to do a, a task, then maybe it's good. Maybe you look lucky and the person will excel. Mm -hmm. But if you understand that the person has, I don't know, fears, uh, passions, uh, dreams, things, they excel, then then Mm -hmm. you will be able to do a team that is the perfect combination of skills.
0: so, OK, so it's a great segue into my next question, um, <laughs> which is about results. You know, you, you you wanted to link, you know, the results with Leading with Heart. So tell me what, you know, you've done all this research, you know, over a long period of time. What what results did you get?
8: Yeah, no, absolutely. So the first is, uh, I'm very proud to say this, is we became the most performing team within SAP Spain. So that's already huge. And the way Mm. it's measured, it's we were the biggest team, the most resources and investment was in in that team. We were recognized as the best team in EMEA South, winning a lot of prizes. We created best practices around the globe and many people in the team won prizes. So for me, that's a KPI, a measurable Mm. KPI already. So that was pretty, pretty incredible. I have to say that when I joined as the manager, the team was a very demotivated team Mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of bad feedback. And uh, that team, we are supporting sales. So we are, in theory, we should be a nice marriage uh, between sales and pre-sales because we have to work. We need each other, right? And if we work together, then we get results. It was not. It was like a horrible divorce we were going through. So very demotivated team. When a team is demotivated, you why do you have to work? You know, I don't like what I do. I'll just work the minimum so I get paid because it's just a job, right? First thing, second thing is competition is everywhere. So your eyes and your ears are super open for Mm-mm. the competition. I had people who told me, competition is offering me 5,000 euros more, I'm gonna leave. I was like, no, wait, give us a chance for five. If you're gonna leave, at least make it for more money, right, they're not like, <laughs> this is how it was. And obviously, if you think as SAP, Uh, a company that needs to sell, we are right, we're selling Mm -hmm. software, we have selling KPIs. If you are divorced and going through fights with the salespeople because you don't understand them, you don't agree, you are just enemies, how are you going to go as a united front and sell something to a customer, right? Correct. So this is the first thing we needed to fix. It is how do you motivate them so they feel like their job is more than, oh, just is a job because I need to eat and give food to my children. To, mm-hmm. my God, there's something in it. I love this. It's Monday and I love what mm-hmm. I'm doing. This is the first. And then second, how do you bring them to understand and have that empathy through what sales are going through, their pressure on forecast, on pipeline, on KPIs. And also the salespeople, how do you empathize on the importance of understanding that you need to sell something that the customer wants to buy, not just selling because Mm -hmm. of the sake of selling. And that made one of the greatest teams in four Mm -hmm. years. At the end, I stayed four years in that team. Uh, So, I think that was the most rewarding uh, exercise, but also the proof and the KPIs are there, right? Improvement in sales, uh, bigger team, investment in more team, nobody left, everyone is there, uh, people promoted.
0: Absolutely. So, I think we've we've now spoken about some of the context. So, it would be… Interesting, perhaps, if you could define what is a community of practice. Yeah,
3: and I think maybe we should all start with that question, because so far people might be thinking, well, what what on earth is it? (laughs) So, a community of practice was a term that a chap called Etienne Wenger uh, came up with through his research with a lady called Jean Lav. Uh, never pronounce these academic surnames, but in the 90s. It was essentially trying to... They were exploring how people learn and then how people can make implicit knowledge explicit. And then what is, what is the meaning behind it? Uh, what does that give other people? But in a nutshell, a, a community of practice is a group of people who share a common interest or profession and come together to learn, collaborate and share knowledge and experiences. And it's a way to foster ongoing learning and development and promotes collaboration and build a supported network. So that's it in a Uh, nutshell. It's a meaty subject.
0: Well, it is. And I I think that, I must admit, when you talk about communities of practice, you've got communities and practice. Those are the two key words. So, The practice element is about the learning. And the community is about the people that would engage in the learning.
3: Yeah, the whole notion and what makes a community or practice work is the participatory nature of it. Okay, so without people communicating, you're not going to have a community or practice. It will have a label, perhaps, but it won't exist because it's not being participated within. So communities, just like any business or like any function, it requires that social network to um, uh, the social construct whereby people want to participate in that and to share things with that. And it can, like the definition suggests, it can be, and you can look at it in three different lenses. It can be at an organizational level. It could be at a team's level. It could just be how, how you, operate across different functions within an organization. So there might be really small community of practices where there's only two or three people in an organization, but you share the same passion. And that results in you communicating with one another because you share that passion. So yeah, you can look at a community of practice through different lenses.
0: Yes, I think I might. It's not really a curveball question, but it's a connection between the community of practice, sharing knowledge, and social capital. Yeah, so I came across this TED Talk, which is all about performance, actually. But the beginning of the TED Talk talked about this bit of research that was conducted by William Muir of Pardoe University. It was published in 2015. And it was based on an experiment with chickens. (laughs) And... What he did was he segregated chickens based on the number of eggs that they produced. So you could say, in the sales world, you could segregate your salespeople according to the amount of sales results they produced. And he grouped average egg-laying chickens together, and he put the prolific egg-laying chickens together in what he called a super chicken group. And he kept these chickens in their separate groups for two generations, and he found that the average chickens were doing just fine and they were being quite productive and producing eggs. But in the super chickens group, they found that only three survived and that the group had pecked each other to death in right. the super group. Right. And the interesting conclusions from this was the connection between high performers, the normal performers, and basically was saying that the social connectedness that you had in the average group of chickens ended up producing much better results than the super performers were doing. And so I'm thinking about this in the context of communities of practice, in the sense of relating. Sales is quite an individualistic profession. And we tend to, it is encourage us to be in individualistic. We have our own targets to reach and we're measured on the performance of those targets. And we're looking at this community of practice concept. And I suppose it's more a question or it's a, a sort of thing for us to talk about is that if we were to look at sales teams as being A community of practice does the way in which you share information the way in which you learn the way in which you have a shared purpose could that supersede the need to reward salespeople based on performance for example would you get more out of a community of practitioners salespeople in sales teams by focusing on all of the positive aspects of communities of practice that you've identified rather than encouraging individualistic kind of behavior that could be driven by sales targets and the culture of fear, which a lot of sales managers practice. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just thinking that there could be some connections between these two trains of thought.